0: My name is Jeffrey with EGA, and we are excited for our guest this evening, Fred of Vermont Greenery. Fred is a uh, craft cultivator, also um, very familiar with uh, concentrates and concentrates production. So Fred, thanks for joining us this evening, dude.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Um, I, like you said, I am a local Burlington cultivator and... Uh, well, I also farm all over the state, but uh, call Burlington my home, and uh, focus a lot on solventless extraction, um, grow a lot of different ways, and right now, kind of what I'm doing as far as like the brand and stuff is just uh, you know a lot of genetics and uh, breeding work um, and you know, hunts and stuff. But we'll talk about that a little more.
0: Awesome. And for maybe those out there uh, who aren't quite as familiar yet with uh, your brand and your and your company, how can people find you? Uh, website, Instagram, what's your preferred method?
1: Right now, Instagram is definitely the best way to check me out. It is just at Vermont Greenery. Uh, I am shadow banned to death. So sometimes you'll have to go to the Vermont C- Greenery CBD link. Um, and in the bio there, you can just find the regular Instagram and there's Um, pretty regular story content there. And you can always send me a DM if you, you know, want to get in touch, or if you are wondering about genetics, or, you know, just have growing questions.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. It's important for us uh, as uh, Vermont's Trade Association to make sure that you guys are accessible. Uh, You guys are heard. And uh, we know that those listening, and not just this evening, but uh, later when it's uh, available as a podcast we'll want to know how to reach you so awesome dude thank yeah. you yeah
1: so and, and and if you're not on instagram yeah. um you can always send me an email uh, it's fred at vermontgreenery.com uh get in touch um i can add you to the mailing list or you know whatever but uh, the website at the moment is down and uh will be down for probably the next coming months
0: Awesome. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if most of our uh, audience is on Instagram, but uh, appreciate the multiple avenues as well. Um, Vermont is pretty diverse, so we've got uh, – we don't quite have internet everywhere yet, do we? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Getting there. Anyway, awesome. Sweet dude. Um, why Vermont? Uh, maybe start a little bit about your background. Uh, were you born here? Do you, are you did you move here for for reasons uh um that you know you, you can share um
1: yeah totally yeah so i was actually born in minnesota um lived in connecticut pretty much my whole life and northwestern part of connecticut uh very much like vermont uh, very rural you know past two farms on the way every day to school um everyone else was kind of like moaning and groaning at the smell of the manure and I don't know. There's some, something about it that always um, attracted me and I didn't really know it then, but um, had a lot of agriculture in my blood and uh, college came around and I chose Vermont as uh, UVM as the place to go. They had a really good agriculture program and I uh, really am into uh, skiing. So the winters here, lovely for me. I know a lot of people hate them, but um, skiing's fun. So uh, that was a yeah, huge attraction. Loved the state and since um, just fallen in love with it more. Yeah.
0: Nice. So UVM? Yes, UVM. Um, I know uh, we have um, a pretty good uh, hemp program there. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a part of that, but um, I, I will say that uh, I know uh, some local growers that have come out of UVM and they're, they're fantastic.
1: Yeah, you- they are- they, they have an amazing program. I was in um, the sustainable landscape horticulture program um, as well as work, like, so, you know, just the classes, all the plant and soil science classes and stuff with Mark Starrett. Uh, he's a very knowledgeable professor and he taught me a lot about propagation stuff. Um, yeah, and then I worked with Heather Darby at UVM Extension uh, doing hemp research from 2016 to 2018. And that was, probably the most um, immersive uh, learning experience I've ever had period so yeah UVM uh, definitely can teach you how to grow um,
0: nice so it's it sounds like it's influenced to some extent uh, your own sort of personal uh, disciplines and 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 processes and
1: yeah, yeah 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 hundred percent I'm, I'm always kind of now a little bit more research-based. Uh, I've never really had a, a growing mentor, you know, per se. Uh, I've kind of just read a lot of uh, research articles and uh, done a lot of research myself uh, to kind of just determine other methods. And it still continues. You, learning is not a, you know, a thing you stop doing ever. So,
0: so you said research-based grower. What is that? unpack that a little bit, I like that.
1: Yeah, um, so everything that I do, I, you know, collect data around. Uh, I think that data is one of the most important parts, especially as a cultivator, um, trying to separate themselves from other people in the space. Um, You want to, you know, be able to understand exactly what you're doing, capture every variable so that it's repeatable. If it's amazing, you know, you want to be able to keep on doing what you're doing good. Um, And then if it's bad, understand, you know, what you want to take away. And it's also very helpful for certain aspects of, you know, this business of, you know, uh, breeding and um, finding new strains and uh, determining things for solventless extraction. Um, Yeah. So I I take all that kind of into account in my growing and I don't really do anything without a defined purpose of wanting to make something better.
0: Interesting. So would you say you have a focus to, um, any, any particular, um, grow technique or methodology? Uh, do you try different things, uh, do different things all at once? I'm thinking also, uh, you mentioned you're a research research-based grower. So it sounds like maybe multiple things are going on at once.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I do a lot of outdoor cultivation. I do a lot of indoor cultivation, um, I do a lot of uh, under cover, but I don't do a lot of mixed light. uh, Something I should probably get into, you know, especially being um, in the Burlington area, it would be uh, beneficial to get multiple harvests a season with a light depth or something. Um, But yeah, uh, my my idea with that is so that I can collect data for multiple different uh, growing techniques and use that data to help consult people, uh, on how they grow because not everyone can, A, choose to grow their, their way. Some people don't have indoor space. They live in small apartments and they need to grow outside. Uh, some people have lots of indoor space and they want to do a full, like rock wool salt setup. And, um, so I try and educate myself and have a hand in all of that actively so that I can better, uh, consult with people. And then, you know, also, just good to um, do all that different stuff. Yeah.
0: Nice. And how does that, um, is there any parallel to, um, I know uh, you're one of the um, first, uh, I wanna say, um, uh, sort of like a, one that acknowledges themselves as a concentrates maker or a hash maker. Yeah. Um, and I think that's awesome. Are there any parallels to what you just talked about in terms of different growing techniques to that end of what you do as well? Um, or is this all mostly for, for flour consumption?
1: Uh, I do a lot of things for flour. I do a lot of things for hash. Um, the way I approach it is when I am introduced to a new genetic, I grow it out and I try and find different potentials, uh, potential uses for the, the plant, whether it be solventless, uh, hash production or, um, uh, flour and, then I kind of go from there. Um, an example being blue agave recently, that was a strain that I had acquired from noble labs and compound genetics, um, through one of their Massachusetts representatives. And it proved to be one of my favorite flowers, but out of any hash strain that I've ever worked with, it is the
0: uh, worst producer. What was that? What was that? Why was that like what would you attribute that to when you say the worst producer for maybe those who aren't familiar
1: yeah so when, when it comes to solventless hash production and finding a particular pheno or a genetic that you're wanting to work with um, for solventless hash you want to really be looking at the trichome shape and size you don't want the trichomes to be small skinny um, there are different types of trichomes too uh, a lot of people Just look at, you know, the amount of glisten that isn't necessarily your trichomes. You can have a lot of glandular trichomes that are glistening back at you. You can have a lot of unicellular trichomes. Um, You're really looking for capitate stocked trichomes, uh, ones that kind of look like mushrooms. I'm sure we've all kind of seen that on Instagram and stuff. And yeah, those are the trichomes that work better for hash because they break off and they go... um, separate from the plant really easily. So you can have a very clean product. Um, and typically, you know, finding a pheno that's, uh, got a lot of that is, uh, better for yields as well. So.
0: Nice. And are you, um, mostly in the solventless area? Do you also, um, play around with solvents? Um,
1: no, I am explicitly solventless. Uh, my reason being for that is, I just find that it's a pure product I myself, I ch- enjoy it a lot more um, and it's more accessible for people to do. You can really, you do it on a small scale. You can do it on a huge scale. Uh, it's, it's a good, yeah, it's a good extraction method. It's been used for thousands of years. Um, not necessarily with ice and water and with all the fancy technology of you know freeze drying and uh, the heat presses today but uh, there's a little bit of a romance to that I think as well that you can't really claim is the same when it's like a butane extraction type thing or you know you're making diamonds with pentane and hexane those are you know scary sounding solvents I don't want to be having any residuals in my concentrates so
0: and yet that stuff exists in the market you know it does there's
1: a there's a space for everyone yeah like um when people ask like um you know do like i i would actually prefer to be doing a little bit of everything it's just you know it's extremely expensive to uh, be doing all of that and uh, maybe in the future when i get a little older Not at the
0: moment. Well, you had mentioned you um, have grown outside uh, all different ways, uh, or or several different ways, I should say. Um, Have you gone into hemp at all? Uh, I (laughs) don't know whether you have a hemp permit, but I I will say hemp's pretty big, and I know that um, there are some excellent, like craft boutique hemp cultivators in the state.
1: Absolutely. Shout out to Green Bear Gardening. Um, everyone listening should go follow him on Instagram. Uh, really, really awesome uh, CBD and craft uh, CBD and CBG
0: producer. You said that's Green Bear? We'll look him up.
1: Yep. Yeah. And uh, I started kind of with uh, hemp stuff. You know, that was like my big introduction to growing cannabis at scale. It's um, a really uh, similar, you know, crop, especially with the CBD varieties. I've grown, you know, hemp, fi- uh, you know, fiber varieties and grain varieties and dual-purpose varieties, and done research on them all through UVM Extension. But um, definitely, the CBD varieties are more akin to the growing techniques that we're using uh, when it comes to, you know, THC cannabis cultivation as well. So, yeah, it taught me a lot, and I think it can teach a lot of people a lot. So you know, go, go throw a hemp plant in your backyard, go get on the hemp registry. It's good for you.
0: (laughs) Sequester some carbon. Do it in a.
1: Exactly. Yeah. good way. Learn how how to make yourself a little rope out of that stock afterwards too. You know, there's, there's a bunch of uses to the the plants that, you know, and if you're worried about, um, you know, losing all of it, just uh, make a, make a tincture or something. Throw it in the harvest it right off the plant, throw it in the freezer and make a tincture.
0: So speaking of sort of boutique hemp, is that where, going back to cannabis, is that where uh, Vermont Greenier would come in um, from that sort of angle? Uh, It sounds like you guys would be uh, small scale.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We do some small scale hemp production. Uh, We haven't, we had products in 2018, but um, yeah, kind of removed ourselves from that space. Um, Won't talk really too much about why, but uh, oh for sure, good,
0: but I mean, for we've we, had
1: some, we had some good reasons, and uh, we are going to reinsert ourselves in that space. We've been doing a bunch of research and um, work with CBD varieties, uh, kind of in a collaboration with Green Bear Gardening. So, uh, expect to see those soon.
0: Awesome, yeah. awesome. Always, uh, always uh, interested in new product drops and uh, and hints at future activity. It's uh, very innovative space in this state, and uh, thanks for bringing some of that uh, into this little area, dude. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, what about um, regional uh, and sort of like um, you know uh, developing um, unique, uh, uh, any sort of unique genetics, uh, either yeah, like area, specific to the region? Um, maybe speak, maybe speak to some of the breeding uh, that you've got. Yeah, done. totally. So um when it when it comes to
1: breeding for like specifically in this area um there's a few things that you want to take into account uh the biggest is flowering time i'd say uh for most people because of um, the growing conditions here in vermont being mostly wet and damp in around harvest time so the earlier you can have your flowers ready uh the less chance you have for botrytis powdery mildew you know aphids just clinging onto that stem uh, not wanting to let go and you don't want your trimmers finding those it's pretty gross and um yeah so i I look for stuff that has high terpene content um specifically uh, terpenes that can deter bugs Uh, i look for you know specific insects and their pressure on the plant Uh, kind of just by walking through my field i take You know, three leaves off of a a plant, um, one from the bottom, one from the middle, one from the top, and uh, flip them each side, count individually how many aphids, how many mites, how many, you know, leafhoppers, whatever it is, kind of just to see the pressure. Um, And yeah, it's, um, that's kind of a a little bit about the breeding. Um, Let's see, what else? should I kind of talk about?
0: So, um, it sounds like you select for terpene and you also mentioned, I thought that was interesting, terpene for, I also want to say it sounded like IPM. Uh,
1: yeah, IPMs and terpenes, um, they definitely have a little bit of a mix. One thing that kind of recently came to my attention is that terpenes can actually kind of suppress PM. Um, and I, I had no idea about that. So definitely gonna be doing a little bit more research into that, uh, it's a variable that I've been collecting but have not necessarily correlated to terpene content. So it'd be interesting to run through that data and see what I got.
0: And out of curiosity, um, to dig deep for, the, for a moment, um, what, you know, I think most people have an idea about what terpenes are. Um, yeah what how do they come about like how does that chemistry come about in the plant why do some plants express more than others is it because they have maybe a specific uh you know vector that they need to defend themselves up against and that just then that just happens to taste differently is that sort of
1: so um terpenes can present themselves for yeah a variety of different you know uh, ways and kind of reasons genetics is i'd say the biggest one um your genetic potential for the terpenes to be there but also your growing practices how early you harvest it um a lot of things like that and the um yeah the thing with terpenes is you, it's very pheno specific and kind of pheno's uh, especially with uh, generational degradation like as you're cloning if your cloning practices aren't you know very sterile and um you know, you can introduce viruses to degrade tissue over time and that'll lead to different terpenes presenting themselves. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different, you know, terpenes out there. So learn, learn which one is your favorite and, uh, how to, how to grow it in the way that, um, it is your favorite because I've grown plants that, you know, have had same, same strain to same cut, um, inside, outside have different terpene profiles, uh, mostly due to temperature and colder, colder nights during harvest.
0: It almost sounds like they're fluid in a way, like they can change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it also has a lot to do with your inputs, uh, your soil, what you're using, if you're spraying or not. Um, yeah. They're very volatile, so it's important to harvest correctly and maintain those terpenes too. Uh, it's, it's interesting when you go to actually test and see these terpenes, or if you're not the one growing it and you gave someone a cut. Uh, sometimes I smell, I'm like, this eh, doesn't really seem the same. Um, yeah, and typically it's you know either been in a Ziploc bag instead of a jar or something like that. And it's just little differences like that that can kind of change the way the, the flower presents itself.
0: Fascinating. Um, you brought up, uh, we sort of sort of organically brought up IPM, though, pun intended. Do you use any beneficials, uh, anything that you want to maybe throw out some best practices for maybe those listening or, or things that you've found successes with or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, or I, whatever. I don't like to use oils. Um, I used to use a lot of neem oil products when I started growing. And I know that's kind of like the first thing. I was the first thing that they I they taught me in, at UVM was to you know, use a bunch of different oil products, um, and you can even make your own, too, uh, with, you know, garlic and uh, thyme, rosemary, um, a lot of different things. Um, can smell good, too. You can throw it on your steak afterwards. Um, but the, um, the things I like to use for IPM uh, are mostly uh, sulfur and I like to use Spinosad, um, and Azadiractin is another good one as well. There's um, a few products from uh, Marone Bioscience, actually, um, that are good, like Regalia, um, Gran Vito, um, things like that. And th- those are all just um, organic, uh, fungal-based kind of sprays that you know they change the population of the microbiome of the plant, um, and they work systemically as well some of them so uh, as a direct in for an example you can water that into your soil and it will go up into the tissue of the plant so it kind of acts as a poison um, and you flush that out of your media that doesn't work very well for outdoor cultivation don't re- recommend that but you know I use a lot of different cultivation styles so One thing that I do use across the board would be micronized sulfur. Um, That's a really easy one, very available. Um, I think you can probably even pick it up at like a hardware store. Um, Make sure that you're getting like the micronized sulfur. Uh, Bonide makes one and it's a, you know, yellow dust. You just mix that with your water and uh, dilute it to around three tablespoons of the stuff per gallon. And uh, yeah, oh, I see some some questions here. I didn't even. Oh, sorry, guys. As a concentrate maker, how do you feel about caps? I don't. The caps are horrible. I mean, <laughs> I I, I, see, I see the. Thank you, Amelia. You know, as as a lawmaker, I'm sure that was oh. something that you know wasn't that hard for them to get put into the into the wording. But it's as a cannabis, you know. Uh, consumer and uh, concentrate maker, I yeah makes me not very happy. It also, I I think it completely, um, you know, distillate would be completely gone. There's so many people in the state that you know they really like Delta Nine distillate, and there's some good well, ways to make it. Um, well,
0: distillate would be so. Good. <clears throat> that brings up a good question, right? So, what what are the caps in our state, right? So. These limits shouldn't exist, but in statute, um, you know, our act, which passed last year, mm-hmm. uh, it's called Act 164. Uh, and that uh, in the prohibited products clause, they have THC caps, and they're defined as 30% THC cap across the board for flower production and a 60% THC cap for, quote, solid end quote, concentrates. So that does not specifically, that, that specifically excludes distillate, man. So that's why it's a, a sort of an industry friendly, you know, what are solid concentrates? Oh. You define that for the group. What are solid concentrates?
1: Um, I, that's a hard one because I mean, even on your extraction, like say you're doing a butane extraction, you can get liquid concentrates from that. It's all about, um, you know, I, I would guess I would call it like shatter or rosin or something like that. But the idea of it just being different because it's liquid versus not liquid, that's silly to me. Um, you know, melt it down and sell it in that case. Like what, what's the, I don't
0: know. I mean, how, do, how does a uh, water extracted hash fit into that equation?
1: Uh, it, it would be both. You can, you can make jams. You can make liquid. Um, you can fill up saucepans. um, you know, you can, sure. it, it's all kind of variety and uh, technique dependent. Um, but I'd say most of the market is definitely geared towards like batter and butter and like that type of consistency, that wet stuff, um, but
0: not like liquid liquid. Um, so yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I would say, you know, uh, that that blows out that sort of the whole rosin, lots of the solid concentrate. You probably want to see a lot of, you know, no dry sift, right. No, most of the bubble hashes, at least at, you know, sort of um, stable, you know, at, at stability probably would be excluded. They'd probably be considered um, solid concentrates um, under that definition. And and well, well above 60. I mean, what would you say the average, you know, uh, concentrate is? I'm not talking distillates like over 60, over 70 easily.
1: Uh, yeah, usually in the 70s. Um, if it has a really, really high terpene content, typically in the 70s, um, 80s as well. Uh, but you know, pushing into the 90s is not really um, a thing that you'll find typically with water hash. Uh, you can still isolate THCA solventlessly um, using different micron screen bags, but and different temperatures on your plate um, just to make sure that you're um, you know kind of leaving that in the bags uh, yeah but it's you know it's not really found very much like
0: uh, at scale like so, in a i mean moving over to flower for a moment we've got some questions coming in that's awesome just to build off of this because i think this is an interesting point i'll share like i've had you know hemp farmers tell me that they've seen thc variances within the same plant like, you know, top down, side to side. And I wouldn't be surprised in my own experience if I've experienced something similar. You know, just think about those top poles and how they vary from, you know, the bottom sides. Absolutely. How I, um, you know, 30% THC cap play to that logistically from a flower production standpoint? It's, know? yeah,
1: it's, with especially um, a lot of the breeding work that's done today. Uh, I wouldn't say that br- I focus on THC like whatsoever when it comes to uh, selecting a strain. I'm looking for a lot more than that. Um, but THC definitely plays a role. And, uh, when you're going to test a strain, if you're needing a deciding factor and like all the phenos are, you know, very similar and, uh, you've kind of narrowed it down to one specific thing, you then look for the highest THC percentage, um, or the highest cannabinoid percentage in general, whether there's other things present and, um, 30% 30% is pretty, basically where a lot of growers are at right now. Um, so to not have that really boutique high quality flower that a lot of people are looking for when they go into a dispensary available in the market, that would be, that would be bad. So yeah, not excited about that cap.
0: Um, let's see here. But,
1: but a lot of the market is, you know, completely under 30% THC. So um, for a lot of people, it doesn't apply and yeah, that's, that's fine.
0: Yeah. And mind you, uh, just to sort of end that, to cap that conversation, no pun intended, that's just for that limit. Those limits just apply for uh, adult <laughs> use license holders. So medical license holders, uh, don't, uh, have to follow those limits.
1: That's great. That's great. Yeah. Cause I'm sure some medical patients, they just need THC, you know, or so that's good that they can get a little bit higher than 30%.
0: Yeah, you know, I'll say that most, um, you know, just, just to represent patients for a moment, I think most of them in the state aren't in our medical system because it's generally seen as not a successful state medical program. So that means then, right, if you're not right registered with our program because of lack of confidence or for whatever reason, you fall under those limits. So I only mention that because uh, just to give Amelia some props, she's a, a patient um, advocate she 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 lays it out in front of lawmakers. Hey, listen, not all patients in our system. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, politics is complicated. We're not here to talk about that, but I think uh, I, I I appreciate you bringing it up, Amelia. That's a it's a fantastic um, question. And dude, you had some great responses. I want to speak. I want to I ask you about genetics really fast. Like, what what do you what do you enjoy? What are you breeding with? What what do you enjoy consuming yourself?
1: Um, yeah. Um, I, I'm a huge terpene snob. Um, I really, really like a lot of those fruitier terpenes, specifically citrus ones. Um, so I, I grow a lot of strains that kind of lean towards that. Um, but also like, you know, I grow a lot of GMO. I grow, I'm recently, uh, picked up a whole bunch of chem gear, um, shout out to earthbound genetics and, uh, chem dog, bunch of good stuff. So. Um, yeah, I grow a bunch of different genetics, uh, basically, um, for solventless production and for flower, both indoor and outdoor. Um, yeah.
0: Can't go wrong with, uh, the, the chem line. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm definitely not limited to like one, uh, specific breeder or, um kind of lineage uh i like to you know jump into new things um definitely pick up on trends um you know things like that so
0: maybe hash production as well
1: yeah oh yeah a thousand percent hack production
0: um, i mean just to drop some names for that that may be familiar i mean when i think hash production i think of oni you know i think of compound i think of you know even yeah. uh, we were talking earlier i mean thug pug these are Name totally. that those may be familiar with, they just they just produce in terms of.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, uh, yeah, Oni got really famous with that Trop Cookies F2, and there's a bunch of good stuff with that. I um I have a Slurricane cross mm. with that, and it's an amazing, amazing hash production uh, plant. Uh,
0: that's, a good, that's a pretty good smoke as well. Would you say it's better for hash or better for smoke?
1: Ah, uh, I I'd say. You know, just as good. Um, if you're a person who really cares about bag appeal, then it would be better for hash. But if you're someone who can really appreciate a flower that doesn't have that kind of classic bag appeal that, you know, what I'm talking about with the denseness and the flower, you know, looks, looks pretty, right? But the thing looks larfy and kind of like not completely filled out, uh, but it's really, really good for hash. I think those are still some of the best buds to smoke. And it's kind of a shame that our market has excluded a lot of those. Um, but someday when we're, when we're legal, I definitely plan on having, uh, you know, some flowers that are not as pretty, but definitely amazing smoke. So,
0: so is in-house, right? And that, um, what is is that? What is that? Is that, uh, is that dosi cross with, uh, platinum cookies or what is that?
1: Uh, I believe that slurricane is gelato number three cross, um, with something and that's the divine gelato
0: i thought there was some archive gear in there i could be wrong purple punch there we go purple punch purple yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah it's a, no 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 so no. yeah it's a purple punch uh cross for sure uh with the grape terps nice it, yeah it brings a lot of that there i love oh. grape terpenes i actually um back to oni i yeah i was gonna say a crack of the beach grapes um so I'm, that's a genetic that i'm excited about going into getting into uh has a lot of uh, wedding Crasher in there, Canarado. Um, so that's a notoriously good uh, hash producer there. And um, yeah, Nine Weeks Harvest also. I, I he he does specifically breeding for um, hash production, like exclusively. A lot of his seed buyers are in um, Spain and Morocco and they do a lot of hash out there so um those have been amazing yielders and some of the best hash genetics that i've had a chance to work with so huge shout out to nine weeks harvest too
0: how do they make hash out there do you think oh it's crazy man
1: they've got rolling fields in morocco it's just like it's not all legal of course but it's like the culture you know it's they're supplying a european hash market and um you know, someone's got to breed for that in mind, there's a future there. Uh, So it's important that nine weeks is continuing that legacy. But yeah, man, it's all outdoor. (laughs) It's all outdoor, just really dry climate. You know, there's a lot of water that's just uh, irrigated throughout the lands and yeah, beautiful rolling hills of cannabis. Oh, I, there's more messages here. Um, you mentioned growing in different locations throughout the state. Are you growing clones in different locations and have identified the geographical locations that consistently have higher terpene percentages? Yeah. Um, one thing that I've found is that in kind of those higher altitude areas, um, like up in the NEK um, too, like in those colder climate areas, I'm not, I've seen some, correlations with cold and terpene production um that colder you know helps keep the terpenes on the plant so they don't volatilize as much i'm not sure if it's necessarily that the cold is stressing out the plant and creating more terpenes i'm not sure if that is necessarily like a the research isn't there for that one yet um but having cold temperatures do keep terpenes that the plant has already produced so theoretically you know you'll you'll have more terpenes right um so colder environments um higher environments um where the sun's a little bit stronger too
0: um yeah i'll say um very briefly uh chris thanks for that great question um um from a policy perspective that's absolutely essential for us you know we want to make sure no no different than grapes you know what i mean um northern california is doing this they're sort of um a larger national craft movement that BJ is participating in. We want to make sure that outdoor um, crop production can be identified per region. Um, we have yet to yet to define that, but we want to make sure those unique characteristics and what you, Fred, and others are able to produce, right, from what is unique to Vermont, uh, can come through in our products.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean there there is a, a bunch of stuff that. I wouldn't say I know a lot of strains that are like bred right in Vermont um, that are like really old school and pretty famous, but a lot of like upstate New York strains like uh, strawberry cough um, and things that have really been prol- prolific in the area over time. Um, sour diesel, um, you know, just to name a few those are you know pretty famous and those are definitely going to proliferate. You know a lot more over time as the east coast market begins to open up a little bit i think people are going to start realizing how proud they are that they kind of are uh, from an area that is able to produce genetics like that it's not all out in cali you know so
0: definitely not definitely not um i think the next five years are going to be very interesting for vermont and for many vermonters um so uh, a little little question that mike uh, just Dropped in the chat that I was actually going to ask myself uh, before we sort of move to open it up to the floor. Um, do you have a personal preference for just your own sort of head uh, between um, indoor to outdoor? I know that, um, and both, I'll ask for both flower and for, for concentrates. Um, uh,
1: okay. Yeah, I, I prefer indoor flower. Um, you're able to control the environment a lot more. And for specific strains, you're, it's very important. Although some strains I would just never grow outside there's, you know, a lot of, uh, variability and to be able to control that. Yeah, definitely better quality product hands down. Um, but you know, not something that everyone can do. I recognize that, you know, so definitely try and do a little bit for outdoor as well, as far as breeding and cultivation too. So
0: can indoor be done environmentally friendly
1: that, yeah, that's a topic for a whole nother podcast, but uh, or episode, I shouldn't say, but there's, yeah. Um, you can, you can, you can grow, you know, with, I don't know if anything's a hundred percent sustainable nowadays, you know, um, especially when it's an indoor growing, you're either putting up a solar panel that's, you know, unsustainably mined and, uh, you know, feeding lights that are, you know, took a huge ship ride to get here from China. It's all that type of stuff. So like, it's really about the person's definition of sustainable. You can run very unsustainable grows inside and not doing, you know, things that make it extremely unsustainable, like, um, buying a bunch of, uh, I don't know, CO2 canisters that you're just, you know, releasing, um, You know, your medium is a huge one, not using rock wool. That's a very energy intensive product to make Um, things like that. uh, You can help your, your footprint a little bit.
0: So how you grow, not just whether or not it's inside and outside, but even like the technique you're saying potentially has like an impact on the carbon footprint.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. There's yeah. A million things you can do to uh, change. Yeah. Uh, I would, I'd recommend if you're really concerned about your carbon footprint growing outside, doing kind of a Korean natural farming permaculture method where you're using a lot of different crops in your, uh, area, not necessarily like right next to the plant companion cropping is great. Um, clover is what I like to plant underneath all my stuff, white clover, just keep it low and, uh, retain moisture and stuff in, in big fields, but, um, for, you know, having things like uh, alfalfa and horsetail and um, you know, other uh, good stuff that you can make into teas and compost down uh, on your land. That's probably the most sustainable way that you can grow, um, especially using invasive species on your land um, you know, and just helping the native ones thrive a little bit more. Native pollinators will benefit from that as well. And then you're then just increasing the sustainability. So yeah, that's the best way to go about it. But yeah, that's a long one to talk
0: about. (laughs) Um, Well, listen, it is, uh, we're coming up slowly on eight. So I just want to turn to those attending uh, and thanks for attending everybody. Uh, Please feel free to raise your hand. uh, And we're at that point uh, in the show uh, where we will allow you to speak if you want to. Um, so please, uh, at any point between now and, and uh, when we close, feel free to just raise your hand and we'll give you guys the mic. Uh, otherwise, please feel free to use the Q&A or the chat. And I see uh, obviously a lot of people have been using that already. So thank you. Please continue using that. Um, we've got some questions that came in, Fred. Uh, I've got one here. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, guys, go ahead, uh, raise your hand uh, or continue to ask questions and we'll go from there. Um, so yeah. We, so. Picking up on place of origin, um, the fact that uh, we will have like things like legally protected cultivars soon, you know, originating from California. Um, Do you foresee any non-compete, you know, trademarking issues becoming a barrier to entry for um, small cultivators? Um, When it comes
1: to genetics, absolutely. Um, You know, having patented genetics, I think is going to be a thing. Um, pretty soon, or at least trademark genetics or whatever, you know, making it inaccessible to people that don't want to fork out tens of thousands of dollars and a huge scale to be able to grow this plant. Um, but for that, I mean, all you can really say is look out for bag seeds, right? These, you know, and do seed saving yourself. Um, it's an unfortunate reality of kind of the seed business and uh, the way agriculture is not just with cannabis, but like across the world. So yeah, um, I'd love for that not to happen. You know, I think that genetics should be accessible for everyone. Uh, Of course, as a breeder, there's some things that you don't want to hand out just quite yet. You kind of want to improve things and, you know, make things really, really great experience for people to grow and smoke. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily in the, the school of thought that, you know, never hand out this or never hand out that, you know, there's share the love.
0: So what's that mean? If I may for...
1: chime in real
0: quick on that one. Uh, will, uh, in the near future. Go ahead, Bob, ba- oh. we, we missed you. Will in the near future be uh, offering an event for members uh,
1: discussing the region of work in and intellectual property in the space and how that uh, can actually benefit locals and small farms. So keep your eyes peeled on that going to be featuring one of the uh, leading uh, attorneys with intellectual property space in cannabis. So it should be a good one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, we all have our IP, right? Like, I don't share my data, my research uh, with a lot of people. So, um, you know, there's there's things that make us special. I'm not saying that we should not, you know, retain our own, our own stuff in the sake of just being, you know, um, free, right?
0: I guess we all still need to make a living as well.
1: Yeah, it's all, yeah it, it does come down to money at some point. Definitely.
0: Good question there. Um, well, uh, let's see here. Uh, well, uh, we do have a policy question. Um, well, welcome to sort of loft that back into the conversation. So um, do you have any changes that you would like to see uh, maybe legislatively to make um, small growers like yourself uh, you know, uh, have more access to the market.
1: Um, yeah, I think land, uh, is a huge thing. Um, and I, I think banking is a huge thing as well. Uh, just when it comes to accessibility and, uh, being able to get in the market, uh, if you want to be able to do things at scale and be able to support your family, your community, your friends, um, you need to be able to, you know, do things and can get loans sometimes. Um, get a piece of land, uh, make those connections. And and, uh, yeah, things are just getting really expensive. And as a, as a cannabis grower and someone who's just kind of in the industry, you can't really uh, use a lot of those uh, traditional avenues to uh, get money and kind of do things for yourself and your business. So I'd love to see that change. Um, I think that's more of a, at the national level, but at the, at the state level, I'd love for, uh, licenses to be, you know, equitable and, uh, low cost, um, available for a lot of different people. I shouldn't, I don't think that they should be, uh, capped on, you know, the population or anything. Um, and that might create kind of a bubble. And I, think you know, I've gotten a lot of, uh, arguments over that with my friends and other growers, but, um, at the end of the day, I think everyone should just be able to grow this plant. And, if you're worried about your business thriving, you know, just grow better stuff um, or grow stuff that's more marketable or, you know, you you have to adapt and change always. And I don't think it's fair to kind of keep cannabis in this uh, way that, you know, definitely I want to respect, um, you know, the years and years and years of prohibition, the history of that, but um, we have to look forward for sure. And yeah.
0: I mean, we don't have, uh, at least in this state, um, Vermont does not have limits um, on its liquor licenses, right? So you can get them pretty freely as well. Um, they're pretty accessible from the state. A um, couple hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, um, I didn't know that. I thought that, I mean, I have some, um, some friends that own restaurants in Burlington, and they, uh, they claim that the liquor license thing is uh, difficult for distribution, but for kind of like the retail side, like, you know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah, I I apologize. I'm, I'm I'm just talking about consumption really. Uh ah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, you know, um but yeah, I agree. Um, um, yeah,
1: I, I think that kind of I I'd, I'd love for it to not have um you know, I'd, I'd love for it to be a lot of growers. Um I understand that there's not going to be a lot of people to be actually buying the product. Vermont's kind of a small state and um I'm sure is, e- even as the green market kind of trickles in the black market is still going to be there or the traditional market whatever you want to call it um yeah so it's going to take some take some time but i don't want to see people getting pushed out for any reason
0: yeah i mean i will say we're advocating for um basically unlimited licenses but with a production cap right so right now um even like the dispensaries they don't, have, they don't have any sort of canopy size, so, so they can either have 30,000 or even 75,000, you know, like grow facilities indoors. It's factory farms, basically. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we, w- we would like to see caps for everything, um, you know, so we have, you know, appropriate size production in the state. But make licenses for like you and I just rolling unlimited and unlimited and pretty accessible and not have, you know, the state um, sort of picking and choosing winners, if you will.
1: Yeah, I think a thousand square feet is a very reasonable um, amount for a craft cultivator to a make a living on, and to you know have be the only license. They don't need to go bigger, you know. That's what I'm saying, for sure, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it'd be cool if there's if there's bigger ones too. Uh, that would give a, more opportunity to Vermonters but also, you know, can create a little bit more competition. I'm not a huge policy guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, well, we are, uh, but anyway. Yeah,
1: yep, I know that. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm leaving it to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listen, um, I'm curious myself, um, since you, you do breeding, have you played around with any land races um, or a- anything that you would, you know, feel is sort of either dated or, or maybe – you know, just thinking sort of, um, hasn't been played around with for a while and maybe is like a newer sort of emerging trend. Um, Um,
1: yeah, me, me, uh, so Sherpa, uh, Sherpa seeds. He gave me a cut of the black Afghani, which is a, um, and it's an Afghani strains an Afghani land race that was brought over to California in the eighties. And, uh, there's a few or a lot of generations, uh, of crossing and, kind of an open pollination room. And, uh, so not really selection selected for any specific thing, uh, kind of just to keep the, um, the genetic potential the same throughout the generations and, uh, eventually, you know, get to F eight or whatever. And it's an IBL. Um, and then I think that was stabilized in like 2005 or whatever. And, uh, yeah, so that's, it's older than I am and definitely a unique strain. Um, really excited about that one. Um, but there's like a bunch of old haze stuff. Um, PIF, um, you know, Cuban black haze. Um, those are awesome, awesome strains and, you know, very interesting. So yeah, old school stuff is a huge place in my heart
0: is piff the same as haze would you say
1: oh that's a, this, so this is a, yeah this is a big conversation uh right now um, <laughs> piff is it's been argued that it's basically just cuban black haze and basically the the answer is not everyone knows um you know there's been arguments that it's washington heights haze uh that it's in new york that it came from florida and that that was kind of the um, the more formal name to the piff um but yeah it's a mystery man for sure um but the, the the answer is generally that it came from uh cuba florida um kind of in that general vicinity and very very popular uh yeah kind That's of one, of, the, one
0: of those good. what I was going to say definitely not unique to cannabis. Right. I feel like we hear that, you know, every so often, you know, what are the roots of something that's just pinnacle, you know, that just pe- people yeah. have memories to, and it's, and it's like, there could be, there's multiple stories and and, and there's probably it's, and, and that's the rich history of cannabis in a way, isn't it? Isn't that crazy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. For real. I feel like a lot of things, you know, like, um, strawberry cough, right. A lot of people attribute to that to Kyle Cushman and, um, He actually grabbed it from one of his buddies uh, that had a strawberry farm or whatever is the story. But like, it's something that you can put a thumb on. You can like pinpoint it. And uh, the piff is just kind of this like alluring mystery. Like, you know, there's a lot of romance behind that and kind of the, the legacy. So strains like that, yeah, definitely a huge thing for the market and for the evolution of cannabis, you know? go back to the old stuff, make things better.
0: I wonder how far north you can grow uh, something like haze or pay you know, one of the longer.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of, a lot of luck with, uh, just keeping things undercover and pushing them, uh, pretty late. It's a little bit more difficult, uh, in colder parts of the state. Um, but if you're right next to, um, you know, Lake Champlain or pretty close to it in that zone four, um, then yeah, you, you can do it undercover. Uh, you don't really need like a light depth for an early onset flowering time or anything like that. Um, But yeah it's all about your flowering times for sure keeping away that mold mildew and stuff and you know those hazes and those uh old school ones like my black afghani it's it's fun to run outside but uh you can definitely run into some problems if it's undercover the the, the resistance on it is amazing i find that a lot of sherpas gear is uh highly resistant
0: uh that's interesting grow vigorous it's got
1: uh Uh, yeah i wouldn't I, i wouldn't say uh vigor necessarily but more just kind of um it it you know keeps away powdery mildew and other things that um i find that these more crossed hybrid plants uh typically have problems with you know
0: interesting so immune system
1: yeah sure yeah um you know, you can, yeah, have a a higher immune system. It can also be weaker too, right? Like, um, it's the same thing if you think about tomatoes, right? You can get all these varieties that, but the thing with tomatoes is that those farmers are specifically looking for attributes like powdery mildew suppression and, uh, you know, fungal uh, suppression. And uh, cannabis growers are just, for the most part, in years past have just been seeing how high it gets you. So they haven't really been measuring how much, and this is why I do the data is to kind of get an idea of, you know, what's, what's causing this so that we can keep our really boutique flowers that have been bred for the tastes and the high and all of that, and have horrible luck with the powdery mildew, but then be able to introduce genetics into that, that helps suppress uh, mold, mildew, pests, et cetera.
0: Interesting. Uh, question, um, don't want to put it on the spot. What's up with um, moldy, mildewy parts of your plant and concentrates? Can that Does that translate to wash? I feel like I've heard different answers on that. Is there anything that you want to maybe put to bed, any myths out there? It's.
1: Um, yeah. I, I would put to bed that the, if you're doing it at a really small scale and you get a little bit of powdery mildew on your plants that you shouldn't wash it. You know, Mm -hmm. I I would say smoking, it's definitely worse. The washing process, you get a lot of that off. The PM will float to the top of the bucket and your trichome heads float down typically. Um, You know, so if you're doing a rinse technique, you can just leave the, or, or if you're doing a drain off from your bubble hash and you're not pulling bags completely out, then you can, uh, leave and kind of skim that, you know, last inch of water that pretty much is devoid of trichome heads anyway. Um, so you know, don't be afraid of that type of stuff. But on a scale, there's no room for any mold, mildew, or anything, especially for patients. Um, and when you're doing a concentrate, typically, you know, you're just exacerbating right the the amount of stuff in there. Um, it's all technique dependent. You can do things along the way to help kind of mitigate how much mold and mildew spores are actually gonna be in your final product.
0: Um, well, listen, uh, we are coming up on 815. If anybody has a question, please feel free to raise your hand. We'll give you guys the mic. We have, looks like we've got Earthbound with us this evening. Uh, if those who don't remember, one of our first guests on uh, Cultivation Corner Awesome to see you. E.G., he chimes in and says, uh, going back to the Piff conversation, uh Piff was always just some fire sativa I would get from Albany, New York for me. That's great.
1: Yeah, <laughs> man.
0: You and yeah. so many people probably. That's awesome.
1: I feel like a lot of people from Albany, um, in particular, they got the Washington Heights cut of Piff. And that that was the Washington Heights haze. Um but that's just what I've heard. I don't know. I didn't smoke any weed out of New York. So, but that's pretty cool, man. It's one of those things, you know, you just, you hear you from so many different places, right? It's like, where did this actually come from? No one knows.
0: So that Cuban black haze, is that similar to all of this stuff you said? Is that, is that like, yeah. yeah
1: so the Cuban black haze has kind of been like the industry, like it, it's, it's the most similar, right. It's the most available and most similar. You can get uh make seeds of that pretty regularly through a lot of different breeders and um the cut you know the cut is kind of debated as to what um or where who but uh, yeah Cuban black haze is kind of the that's the one that I guess people have been saying is the most to like it so
0: do you feel like um there's sort of like uh trends to the mainstream cannabis scene you know what I mean I'm thinking like gelato thinking like right like just the way people consume um I almost almost feel like we could we're on the precipice of like a piff trend (laughs) totally
1: yeah I (laughs) think that that it's a I would attribute the whole piff haze trend oh from Miami. Yeah, definitely from Florida, Cuban, you know, in that, in that Cuba, you know, South Florida area for sure. hundred um, percent. But yeah, that, that old stuff, I think it's attributed to people are kind of going back to their roots, right? People are, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm not as much focused on kind of these hype things and following the stuff that's, I think marketing has a huge part to do with it, right? There's a lot of money in marketing in the cannabis industry right now. And uh, brands like cookies and, uh, you know, runs like they're, they're all over the place. You know, there's cookie, that cookie, this runs, this runs that. And those are good strains, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, there's a lot of genetic potential there, but that all came from something. Right. And I think we're all kind of realizing that there's more genetic potential and kind of a new opportunity in this old stuff And, um, so yeah, it's really, really, really exciting. I think that people are kind of realizing that more and getting their hands on more hazes, more, uh, more piffs, more, you know, Afghani stuff, um, you know, stuff that's older, even like, you know, 2000 stuff like blue dream, you know, those, those types of things are becoming more and more sought after over time. And they kind of had a falling out there, but they're coming back. So
0: it's almost like, um, not not necessarily uh, the name or 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 the, the reputation in so much as ha- how it's grown as well, I feel like, for a lot of these things.
1: Um, a lot of people have, like, a personal relationship with a lot of this stuff because it's what they smoked either growing up or, you know, back in the day, and they're just getting back into cannabis, so, um, yeah, I think that, like, how it's grown has a huge thing to do with it, you know, they loved that flower, they loved, like, you know,
0: so... So where is uh what is what is Vermont Greenery up to uh, uh, this summer? Uh, you guys got any events or, or places where people can find you or plans uh, in the future that you
1: want to? Share? Yeah, for sure. Um, follow uh, Vermont Awana for some event info uh, locally. Um, I do knee can events as well um, at Gene Traders, mostly just um, you know slinging clones, and yeah. So, and if you're, if you're local, if you want to, you know, increase your genetic library or just talk to me about stuff, whatever, um, or just have a growing question, hit me up on Instagram, send me an email. I'm pretty open to meeting new people. And, uh, yeah, I like inclusiveness, not exclusiveness.
0: Awesome. Awesome. We share those principles. Um, well, this was awesome. I will say that we will uh, be doing this monthly. So we'll have, uh, an announcement for the June cultivation corners soon, the sixth episode. I will say just to drop some, uh, drop some friend promotion here. We will be at also Fred uh, the Vermontawana uh, event on Saturday. So anyone that's listening, uh, those out there, um, I don't know if tickets are available anymore, right? But
1: uh, uh, yeah, they unfortunately sold out pretty quick. But hey, there's going to be more events coming up. So if, yeah, if you if you unfortunately you're listening right now and you missed out, um, there's going to be more stuff down the line. So don't worry. Awesome.
0: Awesome. All right, dude. Well, this was fun. Uh, yeah. Hopefully uh, you had a good time. We certainly appreciate you. It's important to, you know, um, give um, Vermont cultivators some space to uh, not just share their ideas, but uh, exchange experiences and uh, talk about where we're at, because we're at a moment in our state where we're sort of transitioning still. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to make sure that these voices are heard as an organization. So
1: yeah yeah 100 percent. well I, pre- I appreciate you and all the stuff you guys are doing to make sure that our voices are heard especially at the legislative level it's a uh, very important thing so thanks
0: absolutely dude it's also our job to make sure they, they listen so let's hope they listen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> anyway all right guys i really appreciate it uh everyone have a nice evening fred have a good night
1: yeah you as well man thanks everyone have a good one
0: see you guys